Good morning, friends. We're so glad that you're hanging out with us this morning. I want to welcome those that are joining us online. Um, today is week five of our series, The Hope of Heaven, as we've been looking uh, just at a myriad of things over heaven. And uh, we're going to conclude our series next week uh, with the Q&A session. Uh, and so we're going to just kind of answer all things about heaven. But what we'd encourage you to do as a little homework assignment, y'all ready for it? Email us questions, and you've got until Wednesday to email us questions at heaven at stonepointchurch.com. So you can just type that in into your email browser, shoot a few questions our way, and we will uh, do our best to answer every single one of them uh, as time allows or permits next week um, as we conclude our series on the hope of heaven. So that's happening next weekend uh, and hope that you'll be there. Uh, today in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, we are reminded as what John says when he is called up to heaven and he gives us the book of Revelation. Uh, in Revelation chapter 4, though, he sees God on his throne and he sees 24 elders surrounding the throne. And what you see, what he says here in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8 is an incredible thing and one that as we read, we oftentimes kind of pass over. I want to take just a few moments, and I want to read this together. So I'll put it for you up on the screen if you don't have your Bible. If you do have your Bible and you're kind of new to it, Revelation is the very last book of your Bible. So you can go all the way back to the glossary. When you get to your glossary, flip back to your left a little while. And when you get to Revelation, look for chapter 4. It's big numerals, and then the small numerals are your verses. And in verse 8, it says this, And John saw there were four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, when you look at that at first glance, you go, okay, well, that's an incredible thing. He, he sees God on his throne. He sees these angelic beings surrounding the throne. He sees the 24 elders there, and they're praising God. But here, he sees them, and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But when you look at that, what you don't always understand is that that's the only time in all the scripture that you see one of God's attributes expressed multiple times. For instance, when you think about God and all of his character, you think about his love, you think about his justice, you think about um, his patience, his forbearance with us, you never see those descriptions listed multiple times in order. Here, what you see is, is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the reason why is because even though God is a merciful God, and even though he's a loving God, and even though he's a just God, every other attribute or quality of God flows out of the holiness of God. Holiness is the absolute most supreme quality of our God. He is holy. He is completely pure. Holy simply means in the Greek to be set apart. It's to be different. It is to be consecrated of sorts. And as a result of that, you see the holiness of God mentioned 700 times throughout the Bible. 700 times this quality of holiness is mentioned. <coughs> if you were to talk about his sanctity or the ways that he's consecrated, you could add another 200 times that this idea of holiness is mentioned. You might ask the question, okay, well, why is that important? That his 
Holiness is mentioned so many times, and here's why. is because everything flows out of who he is in his holiness. God cannot be perfectly just and judged judiciously if he's not doing it from the place of holiness. He can't be perfectly loving if anything he does is not coming out of his holiness. See, our love often comes from a place of selfishness. Or our wrath or our justice comes from a place of vengeance. But that's not the case with God. Everything he does comes from this one subset of characteristics as that he is holy, that he's consecrated, that he's pure, that he does absolutely nothing wrong. He is completely morally perfect. That means everything he says, everything he thinks, and everything he does is perfect. Now think about that. Everything he thinks, everything he says, and everything he does is perfect. Now when's the last time what you thought, said, and did was close to perfect? It's not. Which brings about the reason we have the hope of heaven. It also reminds us, as we look at God's absolute moral perfection, it reminds us of mankind's great dilemma. What is our dilemma? Our dilemma is the very one that David captures in Psalm 24. David asks the question, he literally, as he's thinking to himself, he asks the question, hey, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? And so here in Psalm 24, I'll put it for you up on the screen, verses three and four, he asks this question, who who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Like who, who can approach God in his holiness on Mount Zion? Who is it that can come and stand with him in his presence? Who shall stand in this holy place? And then he answers the question. Look at verse four. He says, it's he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So who is it that can come into this place of holiness? It's the one whose heart is perfectly pure, who has clean hands, who is not false, does not swear deceitfully. The question is, is is that any of us? See, when we think about the hope of heaven, we love the idea that God is there and that we could be with him and we could be a place with others. But David asked the question, if God is completely holy and pure, And John sees this revelation. He sees the cherubim, the seraphim there. And you see these angelic creatures saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And they continue this in repetition. And you see the incredible sovereign nature of God and his holiness, knowing everything flows out of that. Then you've got David, the king of Israel, who is a man after God's own heart, saying, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? And he basically answers the question, no one, unless you have a, a clean heart and clean hands. And the reality is, is that we're reminded very quickly in the scriptures that we don't ascend to the hill of the Lord on our own. Matter of fact, isn't that what the scripture says? And today, if I was just kind of give you this idea of the hope of heaven, the hope of heaven is the glorious gospel. The gospel is what I'm about to lay out for you today. And here's the deal. There's Two different types of people here in this room. There are those of us in this room that this is a truth that we might have heard, but yet has not resonated or settled in our soul the way it should. There's another group of us in here that we have heard this truth, we've received this truth, but we struggle to share this truth. And so I would presume to believe of the next 20 minutes that we spend time together, this is an important narrative as we move from point A to point B, 
for two reasons. One, I believe today that there are a handful of people in here that you know that the Lord has sent his one and only son, and you've heard that, but you've yet to receive the gift and the promise of salvation. And today is that day. Today is the day in which you can come to know Christ personally. It doesn't have to be some idea that's uh, far off or distant, but that God comes near and he meets you where you are. There are others of us in this room that you have yet to share the good news with anyone. That if, if you have the cure to some crazy disease and you have the answer for it and you just keep it to yourself. And yes, you've got good reasons to resist, right? You're nervous or you don't have all the answers or you're not sure exactly what to say. But today I'm going to share, share with you very clearly what you can say to a neighbor, to a friend, to a family member, to a coworker, to someone who needs the hope of the gospel. And here's how it starts. It starts with God is holy and man has a dilemma. We cannot ascend to the hill of the Lord. And you might ask the question, well, why is this the case? Why is it the case? It's the case that man is, is set apart from God. He's holy and we are not. And this truth is found throughout the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10, it simply says this. As it is written, none is righteous, not one. No, not one. Like, not one. So are, is, there, is there one person in this room who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Is there one person in this room that you could stand up today in front of all of us and say, hey, I've got a clean hands and a pure heart. Hey, I've not lifted my soul to another. Hey, I've, I've not sworn deceitfully at any point in my life. No, that's not us, is it? Who are we? We are wretched people. Verse 11 in Romans 3 says, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Paul says to the church of Rome, he goes, man, we have a huge dilemma. Our hearts are darkened. Our thoughts are wicked. Our speech is slanderous. Like we have a moral dilemma. And the moral dilemma is not merely that you and I are wicked. The problem is not merely our wickedness. The problem is that God is holy, holy, holy. He is so set apart that we cannot even look upon him without melting. We are so set apart that he turns his face from us. We can't see him because we would perish. And in his holiness and in our rebellious, wicked nature, we are doomed for wrath. And the reason we're doomed for wrath is because this truth continues in Romans chapter 3. Matter of fact, in verse 23, it's a verse that all of us in here should know and memorize. And it simply says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you might ask the question, when Paul says, no one is righteous, no, not one, who is he talking about? He's saying everyone. So here's the two truths in the world. Yes, I get it. You think, well, taxes is one of them. No, here's the, ta here's the truth. Every one of us is going to die and every one of us is going to sin. The reality is that is true. We are sinful, wretched people. That's why Paul says this in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. He says the result of our sin or the punishment or the payment of that sin, the wages of that sin is death. 
So what do we get because of our moral imperfections? We get death. You get condemnation. You get the wrath of God. And you might ask the question, you mean to tell me that God in his holiness would actually leave us to ourselves and that we would be separated from God? And the reality is absolutely, God would allow anyone to choose his own path towards separation and condemnation, particularly if you and I will not surrender our will and way. Why? Because we deserve the punishment of God's wrath. And our sin leads us to a place of death. Death, not just physically, but spiritually, separated from God. But what's so awesome about this same verse is it seems like all bad news here. God is holy, we're not. We're destined and doomed for separation. Paul does slide in this part in Romans 6. The wages of sin is death. But then you have this but right there in verse 623. And I'll put it for you up on the screen so you can see it. Romans 623. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is what? Come on, friends. Are y'all with me? Eternal life. Through who? Jesus Christ, our Lord. Christ Jesus, our Lord. Here's the deal. Listen to me. Look at it. Here's my fear in this morning. Can I tell you what my fear is? My fear this morning is two things. One is that I've shared the gospel so many times that I might not give it all to you. And my other fear is that you've heard the gospel so many times, it doesn't move you anymore. How do you look upon this text and not be moved? Honestly. You and I deserve death. Nothing more than that. Like we complain about the weather. What do you think you deserve in a fallen world? Like you, you think you deserve Eden? A glorious 83 degrees rains when you want it to? That the farmer would be in control? Really? But that's our life unmoved by the gospel. What you and I want truly in our lives is to be king. We want our sports teams to win so our weekend's not wrecked. We want it to rain when we want it to rain. We want it to not rain when we don't want it to rain. We want rain here and we want it measurable. And then while we're building something, we want it just to turn off. We got a farmer over here wanting some hay to be rolled up on a certain day. You got your neighbor right over here in the middle of a huge project and he's praying against all of it. Who's in control? Unmoved by the gospel. Do you know what you and I deserve every single day? We deserve death, the wrath of God in every situation. That's what we deserve. He's holy, consecrated, set apart, looked upon a relationship that he had with his creation in which they rebelled against him, believing they could be like God. You ever struggle with that? Believing that you could be God? Brandon, no way, I would never do such a thing. Yes, friends, I wrestle with that every single day. Lord, crush me. More of you, less of me. Paul says, may he increase and may I what? 
decrease. Friends, that, that's our challenge. And our challenge is, is that we've heard the gospel. We're saturated in our culture. So many nations and tongues and tribes have never heard the name of Jesus. We've heard it so much on the radio just yesterday that we're in some ways prone to, to just casually approach this whole subject prone to believe that our friends have heard it so many times they won't respond this time. And yet here's the truth of the gospel. You and I deserve the wages of sin. It's death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. That's when we go, amen. It's actually when we clap our hands. That's the church. That's when we respond to the glorious gospel. It never should get old in our life. But it does, right? But here's the deal. In spite of our dilemma, God had a great solution. And the gift is through Jesus Christ. That's why Paul writes it this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. He says, <clears throat> but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So while we're dead in our sin and our trespasses, Christ came and he died for us. And a classic example of Christ dying for us is found in John chapter four. I want you to look at John chapter four. And as we look at John chapter four, I want you to read this text with me today, but I want you to, to, to understand a couple things about this text. Number one, I want you to see that Jesus is about to pursue a woman off of his path. Number two, I want you to see that Jesus is gonna pursue a, a woman not just merely off of his path, but I want you to see that he's going to do something countercultural. He's going to go to an entirely different people group that he would never go to as a Jew. And he's going to do something even more radical than that. He wouldn't just go to this people group or not go to this people group, but he's also going to interact with a woman, which would not have been done in that day. And more than that, as he goes to a people group and interacts with a woman that he wouldn't naturally do that with because he was a Jew and he was a man in that culture, he's going to also do something. He's going to have a conversation with her. And as he has a conversation with her, he's going to talk about who he is and about who she is. And what you're going to recognize here is that he is holy and just and perfect, and you're going to recognize she is not. Now, when you also recognize this, this is an interesting thing. This is John's gospel and narrative, and Jesus already inaugurated, kicked off his ministry, but what I want you to see most is this woman is not merely a Samaritan half-breed mutt, which the Jews thought about as her. She's not just a woman not associated with other women in her culture because of all she's done. But more than that, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that this woman is a Gentile, and she looks just like you and me. We are her. She is you. She's you. And you are her. And let's read it. In John chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now when Jesus learned the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Verse 4. You can underline that. He had to pass through Samaria. Real quickly, just so you understand geographically, no, he didn't. No Jew would pass through Samaria for any reason. There was not a good reason. There was not a reasonable reason. He did not have to pass through, but he resoluted. He made sure he was going to pass through Samaria. Countercultural. He did not want to go up to these northern dwellers who lived in the area that was off limits. 
They were leftovers from the deportation in Babylonia. They were a, a group of people that were literally now half-breeds. They were seen as traitors. They were seen as enemies. They were seen as dirty. They were seen as detestable. And more than that, they had a religion that was similar because it took the first five books of the Torah, but it disregarded all the law and all the prophets. And, and it made itself a new priesthood and a whole new religion. And so as a result of that, the Jews wanted nothing to do with them. But Jesus said, I'm going that way. So verse five, he comes to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had been given, or that had given to his son Joseph. Verse six, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well and it was about the sixth hour. Now that's the hour of the day that's noon. So the morning would begin or the day would begin at 6 a.m. So the third hour would have been 9 a.m. And that would have been a reasonable hour for all the ladies in the village to go and draw water. This particular lady doesn't draw water with all the other ladies in the, in the, in the um, village. And so she's drawing water, what time? At noon. And you might ask yourself, well, why do you go and draw water at noon? And they're like, well, it's a reasonable day, time, like of the day. It's hot and everybody wants water. No, that's not when a woman goes and draws water for her house for the day. She would go early. And, and not only would she go early, but she would go with other women. And they would fill their jars and their pots, and they would bring them back in, in many ways, an entourage, a company together. And that would be the time when they, they, that they encouraged one another, and they laughed, and they shared a little bit of a communal aspect. It would have been a time they caught up on all the gossip of town. But yet this woman is left out of all of it. And, and you might go, well, because it's, she's a Samaritan, and all these other ladies are some other culture. No, that she is... She is an outcast among the outcast. She is the detestable among the most detestable people in the Jews' eyes. And so here it is, Jesus is pursuing a woman that seems to be um, out of place. Verse seven, as Jesus there at the sixth hour, here comes this woman, verse seven, a woman that from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a what? A drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? <coughs> She's even surprised by it. She even then says, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And then Jesus answered her, But if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked me, and he would have given you living water. He reverses on her. He goes, you're asking me about asking you for water, but if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for water. So he, he just presents this conundrum. Like, if you knew what was actually happening here, he wants to say this. If you knew how I went off trail just to pursue you, you would be asking me who you are. Instead, she's asking what seems to be most normal in the culture. Hey, what are you doing here? This seems odd, out of place. Is it odd? Is it out of place? Absolutely. Let me ask you a question. Is it odd or out of place that Jesus, the Son of God, would pursue any sinner? Technically, it is. And yet it seems to be the normative thing that he keeps doing. Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, have you nothing to draw water with? The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? So she's got a couple of questions for him. Okay, so you're here, you want water from this well, but you brought nothing. You're not even prepared to get water from the here. Uh, by the way, what was the living water that you were just talking about? So she's kind of back and forth. I like to call those pop-up windows. 
Uh, men, you probably understand it best from the women in your life. Um, you're talking about something and all of a sudden there's a whole pop-up window and it's like we're talking about something totally different. And there's another pop-up window. Y'all ever been there in that conversation? Just my family? Okay, so you understand. So I call those pop-up windows. And oftentimes my wife will be talking about something and all of a sudden a pop-up window. This is this lady. Here it is. So you brought nothing to draw with, sir? By the way, can you tell me about that living water? He doesn't even get the chance to answer a question. Just pop-up windows. That's living with ladies. That's true. <laughs> question number three. Here it is. Verse 12. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Another pop-up window. He gave us a well to, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And then Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman then said to him, sir, well, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Do you see the physical perk she wants? So she goes, listen, I'm tired of being an outcast. I'm, I'm tired of coming to this well every day. I'm tired of coming here alone by myself. I would love some of that water. Like, can you deliver to my house this living water? Where's it spring from? How do I get it? Like, can I have some today? And then Jesus said to her, hey, I'll tell you what, go and call your husband and come in, have him come back. And then the woman answered, pay very careful attention. I have no husband. I don't have a husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying you have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one that you have now is not your husband. And what you have said is true. The conversation Go silent for a moment. Jesus says, hey, go, go and get your significant other. Come back and we'll, we'll talk about living water. Well, I don't have a significant other. Yeah, you're right when you say that because you've had five and now you're on your sixth. See, it shows you the predicament that she's in. Not only that she's sinful and wretched, but that she's an outcast in her culture. And you might ask the question, well, why? Well, it seems to be that she's been with many men. And then you ask the question, well, why is that? It's because she's lonely. But look what she responds to next. She says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. I bet you do. Like, okay, so here it is. Like, hey, go get your husband. I don't have a husband. No, you're right when you say you don't have a husband. All of a sudden she's like, okay, hold on. I'm not talking to an ordinary person. All of a sudden her eyes are a are now alert. She's no longer dazed, confused. She's now recognizing, okay, this person is something different. As a result of that, she wants to go on. She says, well, our fathers have worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And she begins to, in some ways, kind of combat this truth. Then Jesus says to her, verse 21, look at verse 21. It says this, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. And then he says this, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him will, will worship him in spirit and in truth. <clears throat> and then she says something in verse 25, which is really important. Here it is. 
And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And then Jesus says this in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. I'm here. Now look, real quickly, this is important. When he calls her out on the way she's living, her response is, well, our fathers don't worship the way your fathers do. But I want you to recognize something real quickly about her worship and the worship of those Samaritans. While they do uphold to the first five books of the Bible like the Jews do, there is something drastically different. And here it is. Her religion has not changed anything in her life. There's nothing that's changed. All she's done is move from one man to another looking to fill the hole, the void in her life of loneliness. And she's seeking hope and fulfillment and worth in the wrong place. And it's never called her to respond to God in repentance. And my fear in the gospel today, it's the same thing. We in some ways want a relation with God. We desire the hope of heaven. We want to believe in Jesus, but then we want to in some ways make all of the arrangements benefit us. And I will just tell you that believing is one part of the equation. Some would say, well, all you've got to do is believe in God and, and salvation comes. I believe that it's a belief in God and it's a repentance in our life. Belief and repentance are like two wings on a plane. You have to have both to enter into a relationship with the living God. Believing literally means to take hold and, and repentance means to let go. So as you grab a hold of Christ, you let go of the former things of earth. What this lady desired at this particular point in junction in her life was a wordless religion in which she could take hold of something and let go of nothing. And friends, that's not the gospel. The gospel is a reality that God is holy and we are not, and yet he left his abode in the heavens to send his son as the incarnate Christ to live among us a perfect sinless life and we would take hold of him and let go of other things, we could have salvation. And Jesus literally is saying, hey, I am living water and I am the Messiah that you speak of, which is interesting because this woman who in some ways is debating Jesus about the proper location of worship now is saying, you know what? I have heard that there is a Messiah. Hey, I have heard that there is a time coming when Jesus, the Messiah is coming. I've heard those things. Do you think our friends and our neighbors have heard enough to know, you know what, something might happen? Absolutely. She's heard enough to know something might happen, but here it is, he's in front of her. Verse seven or 27 says, then the disciples came back and they marveled because he was talking with a woman. But no one said that. Of course, you don't say that to the Savior. Like, hey, what are you doing talking to the Samaritan woman? We don't do that, but that's what they were thinking. No one said, hey, what do you seek? Or, hey, why are you talking to her? In verse 28, but the woman then left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? 
And she walked away that day and she was a changed woman. And you might ask the question, okay, well, what was it in this moment that moved her? What moved her was that she came into contact with the Christ. Now, what's interesting is about the Christ is that he would go to desolate places and he would go to difficult people. In Luke chapter 19, we won't turn there, but if you remember that he went to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus who climbed up into a what? A sycamore tree. Why? For the Lord, he wanted to what? See. Zacchaeus was up in a tree when Jesus looked at him and he says, Zacchaeus, hey, we're going to your house today. When Zacchaeus went to his house with Jesus because Jesus invited himself to his house, um, what did everyone else do? They grumbled and complained. All the Pharisees, the righteous people were like, what in the world is this guy doing going to his house? He's a sinner. He's rebellious. Listen, can I just tell you that that's the gospel? The gospel is that God is holy and you are not. And that yet God in his loving kindness pursues people who don't have it all together. And I don't know about you, but the more I read God's word and the older I get, the more aware of my lack of holiness I have. I was having a conversation with a nine-year-old about a year or so ago, and we were talking about the gospel. And I was like, hey, man, tell me this. Like, have you ever sinned? This nine-year-old looks at me in the eye and he goes, you know, come to think of it, I don't, I don't think so. And I'm like, okay, hold on, hold on. This is going, this is going south quick. Um, not what I was hoping. Like, so you've never, you never lied? No, I don't, I don't think so. Okay, like you've never, you never cheated on something? Uh, okay, I'm like, okay, this is going south. Okay, let me get you right here. I got, I got you. You ever disobeyed your parents? Well, yeah, I mean, probably so. Okay, that's a sin, buddy. That's a sin. <laughs> so the reality is the older we get, the more aware of the wickedness of our heart. The more aware we should become that we fall short of the glory of God. And it's also the more we should become prone to seeing that we need a Savior. The challenge is, is that though oftentimes we might see our faults and our sins, the greatest challenge as we go, grow older is that we'll find a way to numb our life with other things. And we'll push off this idea of who we are. But here's the deal, is that man has a dilemma and God has a desire. And here's God's desire. God's desire is that we would follow him in faith. It's that you and I would follow him in faith, that we would be reconciled to God. And that is the gospel hope, that God takes all of his justice and all of his vengeance and he pours it out on his son. Isaiah 53, a classic passage, just tells you that Jesus was the lamb led to the slaughter. It was Jesus that was punished and crucified on our behalf. I hear people say all the time, well, I sent Jesus to the cross. And I'm like, no, you didn't. God in his loving kindness towards sinners who were rebellious sent his son to the cross. Jesus was sent to the cross so that he could give a Samaritan woman living water. Jesus was sent to the cross that you and I could have a new life in Christ. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, I'll close with this text. It says this, And you, as Paul wrote to the Colossians, who formerly were sinners, 
He says, you were dead in your trespasses. He goes, you were dead. You were sinful. You were, you were problematic because of the uncircumcision of your flesh. But yet God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And he set his side, nailing to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Basically, here's what happens. God says this group of people here have a, a list of sins a mile long. They ought to be punished. They ought to be separated. Is that true of all of us? Yes. But yet God in his loving kindness sent his son to vindicate God's wrath. Now let me ask you a question. If you remember how we started this morning, if God is holy and man's dilemma is sinfulness, then how does a holy God reconcile sinfulness to himself? The only way it's possible is through holiness. The only way that God can take sinful, wretched man and reconcile him and disarm the authorities, the principalities of the heavenly beings and the heavenly places is to take something that is holy and judiciously sacrifice it in our place. Now, who was that? The Christ. The one who came and was tempted in every way just as we are, yet he was without sin, Hebrews 4.15. The one who was led, led like a uh, a lamb to the slaughter. The one who John recognized in John 129 and also in verse 35 and said, there's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's Jesus Christ. And it is because of Christ that you and I can have a relationship with God. It is because of him that we can be saved by grace through faith. And the reality is, is we don't work our way to God. Like we don't find a way to clean up our lives. And that's what the church tells people all the time. Hey, just come to church. Hey, do some good things. But it's not about doing good things. It's about the two wings on a plane. It's about a belief in the one who saves. And it's about a repentance, a change. It's letting go and taking hold. Letting go of your past and taking hold of the cross of Christ by faith in Christ alone through the cross alone. And friends, every one of us not only needs to be reminded of the hope of heaven, because that is the hope of heaven, but we also need to declare the hope of heaven. And I reckon today as we close that we ought to respond kind of in an old school manner. Um, what I mean by that is this, is that there are many of us in this room who we need to respond in a myriad of ways. Here's one response. Um, today, it's time that you would say, Lord, I need to let go of this world and of my pride, and I need to take hold of the gospel, the good news. I need living water because I keep churning in old, murky, dusty, dirty water with the pigs, and it's time to embrace living water. And yes, I got people in my life who are going to be haters. Listen, let the haters hate. Because Christ is supreme. And today's the day of your salvation. And in a few moments, you're going to have a chance as our band comes to respond. And I'm going to be here at the front and would love just to share the glorious hope of the gospel with you. To set up a time where we could finalize your decision today or even this week. 
But friends, I would say that there's a lot of others in this room that we should respond to. And the way we respond is just through repentance ourselves because the gospel is not changing our lives. What we want is we want Jesus and we want to be the king of our own domains. Listen, how do we come before him with clean hands and a pure heart? And there's many of us who, for whatever reason, are forging our own paths and it's not the path that Christ desires. And this is a place that could be an altar for you today. I would reckon to believe there's some others of us that today we could come and on behalf of a friend, we could be praying that God would give us the courage to share the hope of the good news. We have a coworker, we have a cousin, we have an aunt, we have an uncle, we have a brother or sister, we have a father or mother, we have a friend that needs to know the truth and we're the people that are to share it. And we have shied away from it. We've made excuses. We've dumbed it down uh, to, to think, well, somebody else will do it. Listen, we are the ones that God wants to, to share the gospel through. We're the hope of the world. We are plan A. And the plan is to tell everybody about Jesus, the Christ, who came on our behalf. Either way, this is a chance for you to respond. You can respond for salvation for the first time, or you can respond as a prayer of repentance or a prayer for a friend. But in these next few moments, it's a chance for us as a church to simply respond in whatever way the Lord encourages you to. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to trust you in all things and help us, Lord, to not be numb to the gospel, that we have heard it so many times in so many ways, from so many different angles, then some ways we're numb to it. Lord, I pray also that we wouldn't be resistant to share it, that we wouldn't be fearful or afraid or believing that someone's not gonna respond. I pray, Lord, that we would just entrust our faithfulness to you and that we would trust that you would be faithful to those that you're pursuing. Lord, you're the one who brings about salvation. We are the ones who are simply messengers of that good news. Help us to deliver the mail. In Jesus' name, amen.